Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. Joining me today on the show is our medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have a cardiac coordinator, lead, STEMI, shock, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest master, Brad Ward. I am those things. And that, can you intro that any better? No, it sounded great. I totally it sounded really yeah, good. No, really okay, good. I yeah. to- totally made that up on the spot because I'm uh, very much a uh, ex- extemporaneous speaker. But moving back into medicine where I do know a few things as opposed to comedy where I know very little – this is a topic and a podcast outline that I've had in draft format for several months because this has been an ongoing topic here at MCHD. I love as an educator to bring back our recent CE topics, our recent protocol changes, so that, yeah, we heard about this in January. Now it's September, October, the fall. Let's hear about it again. But where did this one stem from? This one really started... Uh, we're we're going to have to date and go back to probably 2015 when Dr. Patrick first came on board and we had several pressers and I can remember going to Brad's office and saying, I need you to give me one. I want you to pick a winner, look at all the literature put together for me and Dr. Patrick. We are going to pick a winner for most all kinds of shock. And that winner at the time, sans anaphylaxis, was norepinephrine. For every situation but brad and i could never get over the fact that there wasn't a clear winner in post-ross post-ross was the questionable one and then what was the practice in the service most keep using what you were using keep using what you were they've already mixed up push dose it's in their brain most of them ended up with an epinephrine drip septic shock for now fairly settled norepinephrine and the evidence there is is pretty strong now i'm old enough to have trained with the mantra leave a fed or leave them dead yep so i know that medicine does a 180 fairly often so we're not talking about 10 years from now and we may look back on this and see that we were wrong in lots of different ways we're going with the best evidence today and realistically our change for our post-ROSC presser, and that's what we're really talking about today, is norepinephrine versus epinephrine in post-ROSC shock management. It's not based on a ton of patient-oriented outcomes and not based on a ton of randomized, double-blinded controlled studies. The, the evidence here is limited in lots of ways, and we'll talk about how. So we don't have a flaming torch, but there's a lot of smoke in the room. And from that standpoint, we believe it's time to exit the room before the smoke damages our lungs and we get our feet, arms, and legs burned by the flames that are coming behind it. So we made some recent vasopressor changes here at MCHD. And during the sort of draft formulation of this discussion, we got some more evidence. So we've got two papers to discuss today and the why behind our recent protocol change. Brad, summarize for the listeners how we changed the wording for our shock management again dr dixon hit on it but just for the listeners out there we prioritize norepinephrine how do we describe it we prioritize norepinephrine for every type of shock except for anaphylaxis and unless there's potentially some bradycardia it's another another out there but otherwise everyone else sepsis cardiogenic post-rosc undifferentiated because most of those are septic are going to get norepinephrine 
And by making that change, when making that change, we had a little bit of evidence. So what was the question that we asked when we did the literature search? How did we ask that question? We said, does the choice of vasoactive agent affect post-ROSC mortality? So you have cardiac arrest, you do two shocks, you get ROSC, everybody's feeling great, and now the first pressure that cycles is 70 over 30, what do we do? And like both Brad and Dr. Dixon mentioned, typical EMS practice, and I would say emergency medicine as well, is just, hey, we just gave them epi, let's give them some more epi. Yep. And there's mounting evidence we're gonna go through that says maybe that's not the best option. So talk about the first paper, Dr. Dixon, and tell the listeners sort of who, what, when, and where this was this this study was undertaken i'll roll into some of the study details sure this is a paris study uh board borgoyne et al in intensive care medicine 2022 and so it's a retrospective observational cohort so not not randomized not controlled but they took all these patients looked at all these pre-hospital patients who had at a hospital cardiac arrest and had ross with ongoing shock and so that was their exposure that they that they looked at initially. And for the outcome, I think they looked at uh, a general outcome in cardiac arrest that we look at, which is the primary outcome was mortality, uh, secondary was cardiovascular death or unfavorable CPC. So they did, as a secondary outcome, identify uh, the neurologic outcome. Remember the CPC score is a score like the uh, Rankin score that measures their neurologic functioning uh, post cardiac arrest. I gave that one to Dr. Dixon because I don't speak French very well, so I didn't want to say the French name. But they looked at, and this was a hospital-based study, these people had suffered out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We got them to the hospital. They got admitted to the ICU. They were in shock greater than six hours with adequate fluids and a math less than 65. So that was their definition. They got to the hospital. They got resuscitated. They still were shocky. And now let's look at them in the rearview mirror. So the exposure was a vasopressor, and they separated those into two groups based on a rearview mirror look, ones that got epinephrine drips and ones that got norepinephrine drips. Makes sense. Now, it's subject to bias because we're looking in the rearview mirror. We're not controlling who got norepinephrine and who got epinephrine. It was totally physician choice. So was there potential for bias there? Absolutely. But let's talk about who they included, who they excluded, and what they found, because it's pretty powerful. I, I hope you will agree. They excluded the appropriate people. They excluded trauma patients. They excluded people who were in refractory arrest. They excluded people who went on ECMO. And they excluded people who got neither nor epi or epi or those who got both. Makes sense. Those are all reasonable exclusion criteria. So they had a little over 1,400 post-ROSC patients with shock who were admitted and they excluded about half of those 400 for refractory arrest 20 or so for ECMO traumatic arrest and then another approximately 200 who either got no pressors or both pressors that left 766 in the final analysis 481 or about two-thirds got norepinephrine and 285, or about a third, got epinephrine. So not small numbers. We're at you know four, almost 500 in one group and almost 300 in the other group. So pretty decent numbers. But we're looking in the rearview mirror. Now, the 
findings are where you can chop up the limitations of the study, but these findings were pretty powerful. They're pretty impressive. I mean, the odds ratio, so the, the odds that you were going to have the bad outcome for all-cause all mortality was three times, and if you just looked at cardiovascular mortality, it was six times, so pretty pretty eye-catching numbers. Get it? It's not, not exactly golden science, but it's a big number of patients done pretty well, as well as you can do it, and a pretty big odds ratio for for worse stuff with the epinephrine for the non-statisticians out there me included what does odds ratio mean in this situation it means that you are three times more likely to die on an epinephrine drip post-ROSC than you were on a norepinephrine drip it means you were six times more likely to die of a cardiovascular cause on an epinephrine drip as compared to a norepinephrine drip that's huge that's huge 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 but there's catches so let's talk about some of the catches yeah we got to the buzz that that was like the that that was like the gotcha moment like wow those are big numbers but if you look at the groups talk about the groups dr patrick yeah, yeah. the devil's in the details like were maybe the norepinephrine patients a little less sick maybe the epinephrine patients were more sick if you're new to to reading journal articles the two most important places to start are the methods. How did they find these patients? How did they handle them? What statistics did they use, if you understand that piece? And then table one. Table one's the demographics. And when you compare two groups, you want to look at them and see how comparable they are when we started. And this is where some of the concerning differences come in. The norepinephrine group, a little bit higher incidence of shockable out-of-hospital cardiac arrest not rocket science here bradley who has a higher survival rate in out of hospital cardiac arrest shockable or non-shockable always shockable always shockable so how much different 57 percent of the norepinephrine patients were shockable versus 44 percent of the epinephrine patients so potential for some bias the lactic acid so we look at lactic acid I don't want to go into lactic acid physiology lesson today. It, Generally, I think here it's a describer of sicker, right? Yeah. So it's describing a sicker patient population, and lo and behold, there was more or a higher lactic acid in the epinephrine group than in the norepinephrine group. So what does that tell us? That tells us that, well, maybe there were more, the, the patients in the epinephrine group, just by chance, were, were a little bit sicker. Lastly, if you want to send Brad into a coma, uh, make him apoplectic. Let's get on the subject of targeted temperature, temperature management, management and the quagmire morass, quicksand. No one, no one knows what to do. No one knows what to do. I think that, that we should look at it more like they changed the term from therapeutic hypothermia to, well, we don't know. Just don't let them get a fever. We do know that. Well, let's look at the targeted temperature management yeah. ratio in this study. And honestly, targeted temperature management can also just be a potential reflection of invasive care. The norepinephrine group got TTM at a rate of 85% as compared to 47%, yeah, almost, almost double, almost yeah. double compared to the epi group. So a naysayer, someone who wanted to poke holes in this study could say, hey, norepinephrine were more shockable, they had lower lactates, they had higher targeted temperature management. No wonder they had 6x, 3x mortality decrease. And that's a pretty reasonable it's fair question it, it's complicated right when yeah. we talk about cardiac arrest and we we just talked specifically about devices and therapies and cardiac arrest 
in first quarter CE this year, it is very heterogeneous patient population. There's lots and lots. If you think your last cardiac arrest you ran, you're doing lots and lots of different targeted interventions. And so it's very, very difficult to study because it's hard to say that this targeted intervention was the aha moment yeah. for the patients versus this one. And that may that that targeted intervention may be an expensive device. It may be the the bolus dose of epinephrine. It may be fluids. It may be target temperature management. It may be the order in which those things were done. This is a very complex disease. There's no perfect science you can nitpick. That being said, the suggestion there makes sense to me. Just just as a, even a layperson, it makes sense. Well, we're giving a drug that may really excites the heart. Is that really good for a heart that just died? Well, and that's where you come into, okay, we think we've got all this excellent, strong, powerful odds ratios. This looks like epi is clearly deleterious as compared to norepi. And then we go to table one and we find these differences. Like you said, it's really complex. And it's easy to say, well, there's nothing to take from this. It's useless. And that also swings the pendulum too far in the let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, this is the best stuff we direction. have. It's novel. Looking at epi and norepi in post-ROS patients, there's not, I'll spare you the PubMed time, there's not a ton out there. This is, a, this is the largest consecutive cohort that, that, that was out there at the time this was published. And not to get too uh, statistician on you, because I can if I wanted to, um, they attempted to correct the variability between the two groups using uh, logistic regression and propensity score matching, which to spare everyone the narcolepsy and the sleep-inducing properties of that discussion, they just tried to compare those groups as, easen, as evenly and as evenly mashed as possible after the fact. Yes, absolutely, bias potential there. But when they used those statistical methods, the increased mortality for epi held. So from my standpoint, they did the best they could with the retrospective look that they had, and there's a whole lot of smoke. Maybe not flames yet because nobody's done the randomized, double-blinded, let's match these patients in a randomized fashion to each presser. Hopefully somebody out there is working on that. If you've got a few million dollars lying around, that would be an unbelievably unwieldy project to undertake. But it's the best evidence we have. And lo and behold, because we had delayed releasing this one because we wanted to space some time out between our protocol change to when we did the education, we got some hot off the presses for you. So this study, if you want to talk about additional limitations from the French study, is where did it happen? France. France. In the? ICU. So what about if we took this same intervention comparison and we moved it to our space, to the pre-hospital space? What if they get it in the pre-hospital space? And lo and behold, one about a week ago, Dr. Patrick sent everybody a forwarded a tweet or I can't remember how you sent it to me, but very, very excited. Someone had done this work. Uh, the group up in Seattle uh, had done this work and just hot off the presses in uh, pre-hospital emergency care last week. So huge props to Winder at all and pre-hospital emergency care last week, 2023, August of 2023, looked at the same retrospective observational cohort. They looked at the same group. They look at patients who had cardiac arrest in the out of hospital setting but they didn't look at ICU pressure choice. They looked at EMS vasopressor choice. They looked from January to December, uh, January of 2014, excuse me, to December of 2021. So 
I'm not great at my math there, but that's almost seven or eight years. Looked over a very long time span. This was Seattle Fire, so well done. They do, do great work at Seattle Fire. Their exposure was out of hospital cardiac arrest, got post-ROSC, got an epidrip, or got a norepidrip. The little details into this study, if you're interested or not, you're going to hear about it. The epi-norepi decision was not protocolized. It was based uh, on MD direction from an online base station type setup. They got Doc on the phone from Harborview on the way into the hospital, and the doc said, put the patient on an epidrip or put the patient on a norepidrip. So it was up to EDMD decision-making in the hospital. So for the MCHD listeners out there, this doesn't directly apply to us because we're making this decision based on our protocol. Just some, just some details for the for the study readers out there. The dose piece was variable. So in every EMS study, there's limitations. So no knock to the folks who put this paper together because this was a mammoth lift. Mammoth lift. But the doses were not available and there was no pumps. The range was between two and nine, two and nine mics per minute, which is similar to our dosing. Uh, but the exact doses, the length of dosing, was not available and there was no pump administration. So lots of variability in there that we just sort of have to accept because that wasn't available to them when they wrote the paper. I used to read papers and think, why didn't they have that information? Man, that stinks that that's left out. And then we do some studies of our own. Until he got his papers reviewed and got the reviewer comments. (laughs) It's just- Truth bomb. It's just not what we at MCHD are not in a study design every day. We're out there practicing pragmatic, real, logical medicine. And so we're missing things sometimes we would like to have in an ideal world, but that shouldn't be the enemy of the good here in this paper, perfection. And there's still some good to be had from it. Their outcome was rearrest after initial ROSC. You can make an argument that that's not as strong as mortality in the first study, but I still think it's a reasonable the first The first step to having a good CPC score is ROSC. Thank you. I mean, and that is the, these are the most vulnerable people on the planet, right? That's why we do a timeout post-ROSC to do our lines, do our drips, maybe place a tracheal tube if you, or if you don't have one already, or, you know, do your housekeeping. Why? Because they're more likely to re-arrest if they are going to in that peri-arrest five, 10 minute. Yeah. The way I think about it is that the person most likely to die, who was a person who was just dead a minute ago. Yeah, exactly right. Period at the end of that one. That's solid. And for those outcome sticklers out there, the secondary outcomes included sustained ROSC, pulses at the ED, survival to admission, survival to discharge, neurointact survival with a CPC of one or two. So they kind of mirrored the Paris study. All very reasonable, just their primary and secondaries were flipped. Who'd they include? They included um, patients that were greater than 18. Um, in this study, they excluded no ROSC. So if you were put on a presser drip in the process of your resuscitation and you never got ROSC, you got left out. If you had a BLS response, excluded, makes sense. Non-Seattle fire, I assume because they didn't have access to the data, that's very reasonable. If resuscitation was terminated, that's not the patient population we're looking for. That's reasonable. Just like the Paris study, if they got no presser drip or they got both norepinephrine and norepinephrine, they were excluded. So they had 3,679 arrests. Had to be a, a, a very specific patient group they were looking at. So 3,288 were excluded. I didn't put the 
into details in this discussion because it's too long, but those that were excluded were reasonable numbers. If you're looking at an EMS service, sustained ROS getting either a norepi drip or an epi drip, then those numbers looked shockingly huge to me. It seems reasonable. So 451 in the final analysis, not terribly dissimilar from the Paris study. They had a breakdown of almost half and half. 253 or 56% got norepinephrine, 198 or 44% got epinephrine. All right, so what'd they find? We led with the hook on the last study. Brad, what was the what was the kicker? This is to draw our listeners in. Yeah, it's a big jump. So the rearrest rate with norepinephrine was 25%, while the rearrest rate with epinephrine drip was 55%. That's a huge difference. Over over half, over half less patients rearrested on a norepinephrine drip, just like we had 3x, 6x mortality increase with epinephrine. Big numbers. We had over 2x increase with rearrest on epinephrine drips as compared to norepi in this study. Let's go back to table one and the group differences. Ages were pretty similar. They were in their mid-60s. The median first blood pressure was actually lower in the norepinephrine group, which would make me think, hmm, maybe the norepinephrine group was sicker in this study. Yep. So actually a pro for norepinephrine as far as group differences. Lactic acid in this study was, these are sick people, uh, very similar between the two groups. Uh, 13 for norepinephrine, 12 for epinephrine. So super sick, but similarly sick. So maybe in this study, the norepinephrine group, norepinephrine group were a tad bit sicker. If you squint a little bit and look to your left and the wind's blowing out of the east, they were a little sicker. The unadjusted rearrest rate increased with epinephrine odds ratio. So what was your unadjusted rearrest rate increase? It was 3.5x. After they adjusted for age, sex, shockable rhythm, bystander CPR, which are really the big four adjustments that we make in cardiac arrest studies, that held. So we adjusted the comparison to align the same sex, the same age, shockable versus non-shockable, and bystander CPR, yes or no, still 3.3x increase in rearrest rate. With the epinephrine. With epinephrine. Not with the NORP, with the epinephrine. So it held. Impressive. It held. Uh, Now, we get to the negative. This is where it's still smoky. No difference in survival to discharge or neurointact survival, which is not what their primary outcome was in this study. It's not necessarily what the study was powered for, because if you look at the final group of neurointact survivors, there was only about 20 in each group. So it doesn't take a ton of survivors. A single survivor or two can move that needle pretty quickly. What do you think about that? I think it's a complex question, but if you don't survive to get to hospital discharge, you don't get a chance to ever get scored. So I'm, I'm with Brad in that camp there. I mean, there's certainly uh, things that make you more likely to survive neurologically intact in our systems. We have to work on those. But I think just for this particular question of epinephrine versus norepinephrine, which one is going to favor or likely favors most patients, I think norepinephrine is clear. Yeah, this one's not the magic wand that fixes everything, but it's a important piece of the puzzle. And we've got two pieces of the puzzle now, not just one. So there's more smoke. We may not have flames. It may not be a slam dunk. This is standard accepted practice because we look back at this study and this is what we rely on. These both have issues, not because of the, the, the authors and kudos to them. This was amazing work, 
but there's limitations here. I mean, there's no dosing. There's no timing. So we don't know how long they were exposed to the norepinephrine or the epinephrine. Ret retrospective analysis always limits causality determination. That's just a, a kind of an evergreen sentence. We don't know what they got in the ED or the ICU. We don't know how standardized that care was. So once they got to the ED in the hospital, we didn't, we didn't have that availability. And you know as well as I do, Brad, getting EMS information from the hospital outcomes-wise, they're dealing with just, you know, Harborview for the most part. Here in Montgomery County, we got six or seven main receiving hospitals. That's a mammoth lift. That would be impossible for them to do. That's so, a huge, huge thing. So that's just, it's just it's given. Right the, it's right in the middle of, it included COVID, right? Where sure. our, our cardiac arrest rates doubled here, right? Yep. They, around the nation, they essentially just doubled overnight. So yep. uh, it's definitely a confounder, right? Most people, when they look at studies, sometimes just avoid you know, they, it's like uh, Voldemort, you know, who, he whose name will not be mentioned. No one mentions between 2019 and 2021. Things just got you so know. much more complicated. They got complicated. So that definitely could have been a potential area to co complicate this study. No knock to the investigators here. No, I think well done. Well, really done. well done. So what do we do now? Should we overhaul our protocols? And obviously our answer is yes, we did overhaul our protocols. We said norepinephrine is our vasopressor of choice for all shock except for those in anaphylaxis or potentially bradycardic. Now what's the AHA says? AHA says no direct vasopressor comparisons are available for post-ROSC shock. Well, no prospective vasopressor comparisons are available for post-ROSC shock, but I would submit these two papers to you as smoky evidence that appears to show at least a more favorable profile for norepinephrine as opposed to epinephrine. And if you do the lit search in the other direction, there aren't any pro-epinephrine retrospective no. studies out there. So the only evidence that we have is positive for norepinephrine with the caveats that we talked about. So AHA also says epi versus norepi in post-ROS shock. The answer is unclear. And I would agree with that. But I do believe the comparisons that we do have that are retrospective are solid enough to say for right now, using evidence-informed practice, because we have to sometimes use data that's incomplete, sometimes data that's not perfect. We feel like it's safer for our patients here in Montgomery County to receive norepinephrine drips. And as far as the AHA goes, they're a wonderful organization that does a lot of good work. They're a huge ship to turn. So if they're going to make a change like that, they're going to require more than the evidence that we have currently and our evidence and our reasoning to put a period at the end of the sentence why do we do epinephrine instead of norepinephrine classically our answer can't be because it's more convenient that doesn't stick either Correct. that's that's not patient-centric that's <laughs> that's not based in any evidence it can't just be because it's what we have in our hand and it's easier would you agree i agree 100 percent, casey 100 percent. so norepinephrine is the preferred presser for all shock at mchd Except, Except. <laughs> bradycardia and anaphylaxis. And it's just more and more smoke from what I believe is probably fire and, and true evidence that this is the right way to go. Just based on, we're going to go back to really shock basics. Listen to the, the uh, shock basics podcast from way back when, before we were in the nice podcast room and on YouTube. We talked about the beta alpha ratio between norepinephrine and epinephrine. And epinephrine is just a little stronger uh, cardiac stimulant 
than norepinephrine. Not huge from the pharmacology standpoint, but in that situation where we were just in cardiac arrest, a little more vascular squeeze and a little less cardiac stimulation is probably physiologically what makes the most sense. So there's no positive evidence for epi. It's not like we're leaving out those papers. So in the end, our post-ROS choice is going to be norepi. Now, back to the pieces of the puzzle and the chain of survival and all those other things that we talk about that probably don't get enough publicity, like y'all hit on BVM quality, compression depth, defibrillation timing, uh, telephone-assisted dispatcher CPR, all those other pieces that go in, we still have to focus on those because, honestly, that's where the money is in this situation. It's hands-on, minimizing pauses, proper compression depth, proper rate, bystander CPR. Electrical therapy. Community education. We're going to get more bang for our buck there. But if we can move the needle a little bit with our presser choice, we probably should. Agreed. Lots of pieces to the puzzle, but this is an important one as well. So let's wrap it up. In patients without a hospital cardiac arrest who got ROSC, both in French ICUs and in the Seattle fire system, mortality, rearrest rate increased with epinephrine as opposed to norepinephrine. These are observational, they're retrospective, causality, determination is limited, but we got a lot of smoke. And at some point down the line, we get a randomized, double-blinded, controlled study of this, we'll have to have our minds open to, to changing it if better evidence points us in a different direction. But for right now, we made a protocol change based on this. Stay tuned. As always, larger randomized studies are needed. That seems to be the last line in every retrospective study. Anything y'all want to add before we wrap up? No, great summary, guys. Thanks. Yeah, sounds good to me. Thanks, Brad, for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Dixon, for joining us. Thank y'all for listening, watching on YouTube. Wherever you watch or listen, please subscribe. We like that. Please leave us a like or a review, only five stars. We don't like four stars. They hurt our feelings. If you have ideas for future podcasts, questions, want to heckle us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Appreciate our listeners. We appreciate y'all hanging with us for all this time. Hopefully this information is, is valuable and useful. We'll be back with another episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.